This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. You will recall that the Apostle Peter is here in this letter writing to elect exiles, to Christians. But despite being in the New Testament, 1 Peter is an Old Testament book. What I mean is that Peter is writing to Christians and he uses throughout the letter Old Testament imagery. It's sometimes fashionable to suggest today that we need to unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament to drive a wedge between the Testaments. But the Apostle Peter here in this letter begs to differ. We can see the Old Testament connections clearly at the micro level whenever Peter quotes from the Old Testament. But we also see the Old Testament connection at the macro level as Peter situates God's people in the new in relation to God's people in the old. And he does this through the images of exodus and exile. Of exodus and exile. Peter's letter breaks down into two main sections, two or three, depending on how you break it down, but two main sections. We have been in section one uh, all summer in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1 Uh, 1-1 through 1 Peter 2-10. That would be section 1. And this section is dominated with new Exodus imagery. New Exodus imagery. Peter blesses God for the great mercy that he has shown his people because just like Israel of old, God has called his people out of darkness and into his marvelous light, leading a people out of bondage to sin to be God's people in Christ, to be a holy nation. It's a new exodus. Section 2 opens in our text this morning. Section 2 opens in our text this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, and it runs throughout the rest of the letter. Here in 2 Peter verse 11, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter moves to the image of exile or the image of a wilderness sojourn. And from here on out, Peter is teaching us that God's elect exiles sojourn through this world to the promised land. Peter alludes to the faithful remnant of Israel living in fidelity to God among pagan peoples, and perhaps he even had in mind Daniel and his friends living in Babylon as an image of God's people living in this fallen world. So from this verse to the rest of the book, Peter is writing to the church, to God's holy nation, about how to wage war for holiness and how to witness to the world in holiness. And that will be our two main points this morning. Verse 11, Peter calls God's, calls God's people to wage the war for holiness. And in verse 12, to witness to the world in holiness. So now let's read God's word. In, second, in First Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. This is God's word to you this morning. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
In these two verses, we see Peter calling the church to wage the war for holiness and witness to the world in holiness. But the first thing I want you to see, beloved, is one word, and only one word. This one word sets the context for our war and our witness. This word strengthens us as we wage the war for holiness against the world and the flesh and the devil. This word encourages us as we witness to the world in the midst of opposition. This word is our most fundamental identity. It's our most fundamental identity. Beloved, we should not move too quickly past that one word. Beloved. Peter just described the church as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, servants of God, majestic language that elevates the esteem of God's people. But here, as he pivots from exodus to exile, to wandering in the wilderness, Peter addresses us simply. He addresses us directly. He addresses us warmly as the beloved. Peter surely wants us to think back to the Old Testament where God's prophets refer to Israel as God's beloved, but a beloved who had been unfaithful. Even more here, Peter wants our minds to go to the one who was ever faithful, to the true embodiment of faithful Israel. So we can turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, where we read of a prophet named John who baptized a man named Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. And we read in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, this. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus Christ is the beloved Son of God the Father. And we, as His church, are the beloved of God by faith union to the Son of God through the Spirit of God. And the beloved Son of God arose from the waters of baptism to wage war against all unrighteousness by living a perfect life of righteousness, holy obedience to God, A life we could not live. And yet, Jesus took upon Himself the death that we all deserve. The wrath of God due our disobedience. The beloved Son of God was laid in the tomb under the curse of death for you and for me. But God's beloved could not be kept in bondage to death. No, Jesus laid aside his laid his life down for us and he raised it back up for us. And when the Lord Jesus resurrected from the dead, he accomplished a great exodus for us, leading those who trust in him out of the bondage of sin, death, 
and hell into the freedom of the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Friend, would you come to God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ, this morning? Would you see your great need for Him? We are by nature born into a kingdom of darkness, marked by sin and death and hell. But God's beloved Son came into the world to save sinners. To take an enemy of God and make you the beloved of God in Jesus Christ. Friend, come to Jesus Christ today and be part of the beloved. And brothers and sisters in Christ, know that you are beloved. You are the beloved of God in Jesus Christ. God the Father's love for you is the same as God the Father's love for His beloved Son. How great is the love of God for us that He might call us His beloved. And beloved, we are called in 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 and 12 to wage the war for holiness and witness to the world in holiness. Yet as we wage the war for holiness, beloved, let us always remember that the beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has won the war for us. He has crushed the head of that wicked serpent. We were crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ in us. And he has overcome this world. The war is fierce, beloved. But the battle is won in Jesus Christ And this changes the way we fight the war for holiness. And as we witness to the world, beloved, rest assured that your witness is sure. For the beloved Son of God will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. And as sure as Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, so God has saved is saving, and will save a multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he has appointed your witness in holiness as the means to that glorious end. What great confidence we have, beloved, in our witness through Jesus Christ. So now let's turn and let's consider 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Let's consider that Jesus has won the war and therefore we wage the war in holiness. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, we see first that the war for holiness is in the land of exile. The war for holiness is in the land of exile. We are sojourners and exiles in this world. We live in a world under Babylonian captivity, a world that is cursed and but for God's common grace opposed to God and his beloved son. Again, here we might think back to Daniel and his example of fidelity to God living in Babylon under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel and the people lived under Babylonian rule as exiles, but longed to be in Jerusalem, their happy home. And this is a good reminder to us that no matter how close Texas is to heaven on earth, and no matter how much College Station might feel like my eternal home, beloved, as the author of Hebrews put it, this world is not our permanent home. 
for we are looking forward to a home that is yet to come. We wage the war for holiness in the land of exile, pressing onward to our heavenly home. I wonder how often we think of heaven. We are a young congregation and we live in a day where we tend to consider only the here and now, only the imminent matters of life. How impoverished is our faith because we think too often of this life and not often, of, uh, often enough of the life to come. Beloved, this land of exile, as wonderful as it is by God's grace, is difficult and sad and at times dangerous. The good news, though, is that the Lord Jesus has gone before us in the land of exile to win the war. He has gone to prepare a place for us that where he is, we may be also. And even more than that, he has promised to be with us through the land of exile, to never leave us and never forsake us. And so as we sojourn in this weary land, we are not to grow comfortable or complacent. How easy it is to let our guard down and forget we are at war in this land of exile. Rather, the war for holiness requires action from us. The war for holiness requires action from us. We see that in Peter's ur- we see that in Peter's urgent admonition, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain. Here Peter's urgent admonition to abstain carries the connotation of a man begging you as those whom he loves to continually keep away and to avoid Sin. Beloved, the war for holiness requires action from us. Some Christians argue that God's grace is is passive. It's received passively. That if only we were to let go and to let God, then the Spirit of God would put to death our sin. But beloved, that is not the teaching of the Bible. The pattern in Scripture, and in fact the pattern here in 1 Peter is that God's grace redeems and then God's grace empowers for action. We see that in the, in the Exodus and the giving of the commandments. God redeems from Egypt by his grace and empowers his people to obedience by his grace. We see that in the Great Commission. Jesus redeems a people by his grace, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And he empowers his people by grace to go and make disciples of all nations. We see that in Paul's epistles, the indicative, God saved you, and the imperative, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your salvation by God's grace. And here, we see that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, redeemed by grace. Therefore, Peter begs you to continually keep away from sin. The Christian life is taking heaven by storm. It's an active insurgency against the world and the flesh and the devil. And the good news, beloved, is that the Spirit of Christ 
empowers us to wage this war by faith. So work out your salvation, beloved. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The war for holiness requires action from you. 1 Peter 2.11 teaches us that the war for holiness is in the land of exile, that the war requires action, and we wage the war for holiness because the war is personal. The war is personal. We often quote the godly Puritan, I think we've quoted him about three times this summer already, John Owen, for good reason. When John Owen wrote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin will be killing you. Not the person next to you. Not your friend. Not a neighbor. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That is what Peter says here. I beg you to continually keep away from the passions of your sinful flesh that wage war against your soul. This war for holiness is personal. It is a war against your sin and for your life. Your sin that Peter refers to here as passions of the flesh is expounded for us uh, in a, by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, Paul writes... Now the works of the flesh, or the passions of the flesh, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I wonder if you can find your sin in that list. And if you can't, surely your sin fits into things like these. These are the sins that wage war against your soul, beloved. To give yourself over to these sins is to give away your life. To give in to these passions is like wrapping an explosive vest around your chest. It's like purposefully walking through a field of landmines. You are putting your life, your soul, now and into eternity at incomparable risk. And did you notice, did you notice that the list in Galatians 5 lists out the big sins? It lists out the big sins. Sexual immorality, idolatry, drunkenness. But notice the number of small or what Jerry Bridges called respectable sins. Enmity, the act of being or feeling actively opposed to someone. Enmity. Strife, 
angry or bitter disagreement. Jealousy, anger, rivalry, dissension, disagreement that leads to discord, division, envy, a discontent or a resentful longing for someone else's position or possession. Beloved, these respectable sins wage no less war against your soul than the big sins. One of the schemes of the enemy is to lull you into complacency against respectable sins. Do you have enmity with someone? Are you at strife? Are you, do you have strife with someone? Are you jealous of someone? Do you have fits of anger? Do you disagree with someone that leads to discord? Do you you, or do you know someone who causes division? Do you envy someone? The war for holiness is personal. It is your sin and it is your life. And the war for holiness is spiritual. It is spiritual. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 defines the sins of the flesh. But he also holds out our life in Galatians 5. He holds out our life in the fruit of the Spirit. It is in the waging of the war. It is in the waging of the war for holiness that we seek the plunder of the Spirit of God. Love. Joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Our waging the war for holiness is a waging war against death and for life. Against sin and for the fruit of the Spirit of God. And this is what the Lord Jesus came to do for us. Through his death and resurrection, we too die to sin and are made alive by the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ in you, beloved, is fitting you, working in you, to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to bear the fruit of the Spirit of God. It's fitting you and working in you to wage the war For holiness. Let us be reminded this morning that the war is spiritual because the Spirit of God is working in you, and also because the passions of the flesh that are characteristic of our sinful nature are not appropriate to a Christian's heavenly home. We wage the war for holiness in the land of exile as we await our heavenly home. That's not to say that we're ascetics or Gnostics or opposed to this material world. No, the Lord Jesus put on human flesh. He had human bones. He ate human food and he did it all to save us. He will give us glorified resurrection bodies like his resurrection body. We will live in a new heaven and a new earth, a glorified creation, our heavenly home. But it is to say that in our wartime action, Our putting to death the passions of the flesh 
in those actions, in that war, our weapons of war are spiritual. Our weapons of war are spiritual. The Apostle Paul echoes this theme in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul exhorts us in the midst of the battle to stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of division. No, that comes with the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And elsewhere, Paul will tell us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. God's Word is the all-sufficient spiritual weapon we need to put to death the passions of the flesh. And God's Word is comprehensive, and it tells us a lot lot of things to do, but it's God's Word that we go to. It's God's Word we go to as we read the Word and pray the Word and hear the Word, sing the Word, and see the Word together, together as God's beloved. It's in doing that that we tighten the belt of truth, that we fit the feet, our feet with the gospel of peace, that we take up the shield of faith, and we wield the sword of the Spirit all by the Word of God. This also means, beloved, that we do not wage war against flesh and blood. Our enemy in this war is not another human being made in the image of God. We live in a cultural moment rife with the passions of the flesh that wage war against our collective souls. Sexual immorality, impurity, dissension, division, fits of anger. Beloved, we wage the war for holiness by the Spirit against the principalities and powers in the spiritual realm, against the devil and his minions, not against a fellow human being made in the image of God. 1 Peter 2.11 teaches that we wage the war for holiness in the land of exile and against the principalities and powers in the spiritual realm. And 1 Peter 2.12 teaches that our witness is to the people of that land, to the world in which we live. So keeping with the Old Testament imagery, Peter calls us to keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Peter is not talking here exclusively to Jewish Christians, but to all believers. But to all believers in a Gentile land. Verse 1, Paul, Peter writes to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Even more than that, Peter is drawing on the imagery of God's people of old, being exiled amongst the Gentiles in Babylon, And now, Jew and Gentile alike are united in the beloved, Jesus Christ, and so are like exiles in this world, living among Gentiles, living among unbelievers. We see here an allusion to the church, both Jew and Gentile, as being the Israel of God, witnessing to the Gentile world, the unbelieving world. 
Brothers and sisters, be reminded of the prayer that Jesus prayed for you in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays his high priestly prayer. And in that prayer, Jesus prays for your witness in the world. John 17, starting in verse 9. I am praying for them. Jesus is praying to the Father. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, Unity, not division. They may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has Hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Beloved, how are you witnessing in the world? Did you notice that Jesus specifically prayed that the Father would not take you out of the world, but instead Jesus has sent you into the world? We are not of the world, beloved, but we should never shirk back from being in the world. So as Christians go about waging the war for holiness, awaiting our heavenly home, we witness in the world in holiness. Peter says we are to keep our conduct honorable, that our day-by-day pattern of life in the world is pleasing to God. It's distinct from the world, and it's remarkable for its devotion to God. Your witness in the world requires you to take action in the world. Your witness in the world, beloved, requires you to take action in the world. We must be about the work of witnessing in the world. How do you keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable? How do they see your good deeds if you are not actively witnessing in the world? I think Peter will unpack specifically uh, how that looks in certain instances throughout the rest of this letter, where he, uh, he will focus on our witness in suffering, and he will focus on our witness through submission to authority. But for our purposes today, I want to remind us that God has plainly revealed to us the deeds that he finds good. We need not rest on our own ingenuity. 
or creativity in conjuring up good deeds that are pleasing to God and witness to the world? No. Beloved, have no other gods before God. And do not give your worship to any created being. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain, but honor Him in all that you do. Beloved, work hard, diligently as unto the Lord six days, and rest on the Lord's day. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder in fact or in heart. Do not commit adultery, beloved, or even lust in your heart. Do not steal, but repay and even profit everyone. Let honesty characterize all that you do and be content with God's providence in your life. These are good deeds. These are not good deeds of the world, but they are good deeds we can do in the world. And even more, be about the good deed of telling the world about the beloved Son of God who did what the world could not do. He obeyed all of God's commands, yet willingly took on himself the sins of the world so that anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ would be counted amongst the beloved of God. And then, beloved, and then teach them to obey all that God has commanded, all the good deeds plainly revealed to God's beloved. These are the actions we can take as we witness in the world. But as you go about the good deed of witnessing to the world in holiness, beloved, you will face opposition. Notice that Peter says, when they speak against you as evildoers, not if, but when. Look, we don't want to witness in such a way to the world or in the world that provokes anger. We want to be fitted with the gospel of peace, not jerks for Jesus. But how easily, how easily do we shirk from any witness in the world because we are afraid of opposition? A godly life in the land of exile will find opposition. Think of our brothers and sisters in China or North Korea or Pakistan or the Middle East or in Europe or in North America all over the world and all throughout history, brothers and sisters have faced opposition for their witness to the world. We should thank God for the blessing of religious liberty in this country, but never fail to be prepared to take a cue from our brothers and sisters when that liberty is gone. We will face opposition from the world as we witness to the world in holiness. But also, how quick are we to castigate as foolish or even wicked a brother or sister in Christ who is standing firm against the world in good faith and in a clear conscience? Sometimes, 
Sadly, even a godly life will find opposition in the church. Brothers and sisters, let us put to death the passions of the flesh that wage war against each other. And instead, witness to the world by the love that we have for one another, even when we disagree. As you witness to the world, you will face opposition. But beloved, fear not. For the Lord Jesus will never leave you or forsake you as you face opposition in the world. The Lord Jesus himself suffered for righteousness' sake, and the disciple is no greater than his master. Your witness is to the world. Your witness requires action. Your witness will be opposed. Your witness is spiritual. Your witness is spiritual. Beloved, remember that we wage the war for holiness with spiritual weapons. And our witness to the world is a spiritual message. Certainly, the Christian message has social and cultural and political implications. But the Christian witness is more fundamental. Our witness to the world is be reconciled to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For all that we could say about any number of good things, the fundamental Christian witness is that Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. And when we witness to the world with this gospel message accompanied by good deeds, Peter tells us God is glorified. Peter uses this phrase, uh, day of visitation, at the end of verse 12. And day of visitation could mean either salvation or judgment. Um, Salvation or judgment. Wayne Grudem argues a better translation might be on a day when God visits, either in salvation or judgment. Uh, Similar phrases appear a couple of times in Scripture in the context of judgment, and they appear particularly in the prophets. So it could be that Peter has in view here that God will be glorified on the day of final judgment by the faithful witness of his people. That's possible. But more likely, in my view, is that Peter is saying that by the holy witness of God's people, unbelievers will be visited by the Spirit of God in salvation. And God is glorified in salvation. This seems to be what Peter illustrates for us in chapter 3. Chapter 3, he instructs wives to submit to the authority of their own husbands, even if the husband is an unbeliever, so that the respectful and pure conduct of the believing wife will be a godly witness to the unbelieving husband, and the husband may be one without a word. May be one without a word. He may come to faith and God be glorified. As an aside, I don't think that means that the wife hasn't spoken to the husband about the gospel, but that the wife is not about the business of persuading the husband with words, but rather the wife is a model for us. The wife is a model of persuading an unbeliever with honorable conduct and good deeds. I think that's what Peter's getting at here. But regardless if day of visitation means God's judgment or God's salvation, and I think it means God's salvation, the point, the point is that your witness to the world, beloved, will have sure and eternal and spiritual effect. 
God's word through your witness will not return void. God will be glorified in your witness to the world. What a motivation that would be. Knowing that your witness to the world is the means by which God is glorified. What motivation that is to witness to the world. So let your light shine before others, beloved, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, we should conclude. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 teach us to wage war for holiness in this land of exile and to witness to the world as we await the coming of our King and His kingdom. In a few moments, we will sing, A mighty fortress is our God. And I was struck this week meditating on the words of that song, just how much Martin Luther and the Apostle Peter are getting at the same thing. As we wage the war for holiness, beloved, and witness to the world, be reminded that we do so as God's beloved, and that God is our fortress and shield, a present help in times of trouble. And as we will sing in just a minute, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Let's pray. Father, what great love you have shown your beloved in Jesus Christ and by your Holy Spirit. Fill us, O Lord, with your Spirit that we may wage war against our sin and witness to the world of your salvation. God, keep us from the passions of the flesh, but work in us honorable conduct, good deeds that are pleasing in your sight that others might see and hear and be saved. Fix our eyes, O God, on the Lord Jesus, who leads us through this land of exile and into the promised land. Keep us, O Lord, we pray, until that day. In Jesus' name, amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the Great Commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.